This episode features depictions of violence against children, death, and language that some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. The small wooden frame of the Leeds house shook in the coastal storm. Screams reverberated from within and echoed into the darkness of New Jersey's Pine Barrens. Mother Leeds was in labor with her 13th child. No midwife would help her. Everyone who lived nearby whispered that she was a witch. She could barely feed the 12 pairs of eyes that watched on in horror from the corners of the room. She couldn't provide for another. This labor was unlike the others. This time, the tears that formed in her eyes were tears of blood. Every kick felt like a dagger. Every contraction ripped her breath from her throat. It felt like she was being eaten from the inside out. And as the child crowned, the words she screamed reached all the ways to the very bowels of hell. Let this one be the devil. Devil or miracle, the child clawed its way out, covered in slime, and fell to the floor. It had cloven black hooves, talons, a forked tail, the wings of a bat, and the head of a goat. It swiped at its cowering siblings, then let out a pained, blood-curdling cry. And then it disappeared up the chimney. The beast leapt from the house and ran into the darkness of the forest. A monstrosity, an unwanted child, a Jersey devil. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey into the haunted woods of New Jersey's Pine Barrens, home to the infamous Jersey Devil. But it isn't the only monster said to haunt the peculiar woods. Though the origin story of the Jersey Devil has many variations, the central narrative remains the same. A pregnant woman, referred to as Mother Leeds, shouts the words, Oh, let this one be the devil. Some stories maintain that the child was born a monster. Others claim it was born a typical baby, and its progression to fanged beast happened over time. Whether immediate or gradual, however, its eventual form is always the same. Bat-like wings, a goat-like head, claws, horns, and hooves. It yelps one time only, and then crawls up the chimney and flies into the forest. The monster was originally called the Leeds Devil, before becoming known as the Jersey Devil. And as it turns out, Mother Leeds may have actually existed. 
In a will dated February 5th, 1736, a man named Japhet Leeds refers to his wife, Deborah. Deborah Leeds just so happened to bear a lot of children, 12 in fact, at least 12 that were recorded. But while we may have found proof that the Leeds family existed, concrete evidence of their 13th child has been more difficult to come by. But then, in the late 1960s, a local curiosity led to a new search for the devil, a search that may just have turned up some answers. The trees lining the perimeter of the New Jersey Pine Barrens were littered with reward posters. The Circus Requiem was in town, and its owner, George Alabaster, wanted a new attraction. He offered $100,000 to anyone who could capture the Jersey Devil and bring it back to him, alive. Among the hopefuls looking to cash in on Alabaster's promise was 13-year-old Peter Honovich. The final episode of Star Trek, Turnabout Intruder, aired the Tuesday prior, and he needed something to occupy his time. Hunting a demon sounded as good a venture as any. Peter's best friends were the twins, Miles and Jordan Banks. When he first suggested the idea at a sleepover, they had spent the entire night brainstorming ways to spend the $100,000. With that kind of cash, they could prevent the Velvet Arcade from closing and see Midnight Cowboy at least a hundred more times. But as the boys packed their backpacks to spend their Saturday night in the woods, Peter rolled his eyes at the twins' newfound doubt. They had each told their parents they'd be spending the night at Peter's house, so nobody knew where they really were. If something went wrong, they might never be found. And with each step they took, Jordan and Miles questioned Peter's master plan. Peter had been inspired by the pilot episode of Star Trek, The Man Trap, where the salt vampire is lured into a trap using Captain Kirk as bait. But given that no one was willing to be the decoy, they made a dummy instead. It was meant to look like the witch Mother Leeds. Like the salt vampire in Star Trek, the Jersey Devil was said to crave love almost as much as it craved food. Its haunting cries were allegedly the beast pining for the affection it was denied by its mother. With the dummy Mother Leeds in tow, Peter turned on their lamp and marched boldly into the forest. He was very proud of their handiwork. But Miles couldn't stop commenting on how much it looked like a broomstick that was padded with bedsheets, ground beef, duct tape, and dressed in Peter's mother's clothes. Which is exactly what it was. Peter was tired of the twins' hesitancy. It didn't matter what it looked like. Under the cover of night, even a bush could be mistaken for a woman. Jordan dryly noted that by logic, anything could be anything in the dark. They only needed the Jersey Devil to be fooled long enough for them to land a few shots and to drop their net. They brought BB guns in lieu of phasers and the volleyball net they took from the Banks' garage. It would probably be damaged, but they could replace it with their reward money. Whether the monster came for devotion or dinner, the three boys were ready to outwit the beast. As ardent horror movie fans, they were prepared to do what all their favorite film protagonists failed to even think of. Climb a tree, hide, and wait for morning. And as Boy Scouts of America, they knew to bring spray paint so they could mark the trees as they went. 
That way they could find their way out come morning. And they were sure to follow the most important rule of all. Never, never separate. After roughly an hour of walking, Peter, Miles, and Jordan found a small clearing. The perfect spot. Enough space for their trap with plenty of coverage nearby to hide, should something go wrong. They were prepared for everything, except for the cold. The boys' hands shook as they unpacked the materials. Air rifles, baseball bats, the volleyball net, and a hammer and stakes to pin the net down once the beast was trapped. The Jersey Devil wasn't the only predator in the Pine Barrens that they had to be worried about. There were also black bears and rattlesnakes. But Peter's biggest fear wasn't that they would run into something. It was that they wouldn't run into the Jersey Devil. Miles set to work building a fire while Jordan propped the Mother Leeds dummy against a pine tree. Peter took out their secret weapon, a cassette recorder. He had brought a tape of lullabies with him. If it was love the Jersey Devil wanted, it was love that he would get. He tossed it in and pressed play to give it a test. But no sooner was it playing that the boys heard a noise in the distance. A cry. Peter pressed stop. It sounded like a pig getting skinned alive. His heart raced. The cry wasn't his imagination. Miles and Jordan heard it too. It had to be the Jersey Devil. It had to. He couldn't believe their luck. Peter had been hunting with his father before, and it usually involved more waiting. They had to focus, get the fire going. Their lamp didn't provide enough light to illuminate the whole clearing. The only problem was, the fire wasn't lighting. Miles was striking the flint wildly, cursing every time sparks refused to appear. Peter didn't understand. It was so much easier under the controlled environment of the Boy Scouts. It was getting closer. Peter pushed Miles aside and took the flint out of his hands. He would do it. He'd done it before, but his freezing hands shook as he scraped away. A spark caught some of the dry leaves, but quickly went out. The next time he struck the flint, he missed. The jagged rock sliced open the pad of his thumb, and he cried out, only to be cut short by the flapping of wings and the thud of something landing nearby. Instinct took over. Peter turned off the lamp. He was doing it. He was making the same bad decisions he always complained about in movies. The volleyball net was still unpacked. The air rifles weren't on their person. The three boys held their breath, waiting. So much for climbing the trees. Peter could smell his own blood, which surely meant the Jersey Devil could as well. He grabbed his lamp and slowly inched his way toward the undergrowth at the edge of the clearing. And in doing so, he broke the number one rule, never separate. Behind him, he heard the flapping of wings and another shriek. Peter jumped and threw up a little in his mouth. That time, it sounded like the monster got a hold of something. He prayed that it was their dummy. He knew better than to speak, but all he wanted to know was that Miles and Jordan were still alive and close. Maybe they were crawling for the guns. Maybe whatever it was 
didn't even know they were there at all. Maybe the ground beef would prove appetizing enough. Peter's bloody hand brushed against something hard. It was only the cassette player, but it was something. The monster sniffed the air. It knew they were there. It seemed to be moving away from him. For all he knew, it was heading for one of his best friends. So Peter did the only thing he could. He pressed play. As soon as the haunting lullaby began, he hurled the cassette player into the woods away from them. The monster let out a horrific cry and took flight. Peter let out a sigh of relief. With the monster distracted, he clicked on the lamp. To his surprise, he could make out the figures of Miles and Jordan, their heads poking out from a bush across the clearing. As far as he could tell, they both seemed to be alive, but for some reason, their eyes wouldn't meet his. They were looking above him. Peter looked up to see what it was that caught their attention. And when he did, he was staring straight into the eyes of the devil himself. And then it descended. In the 1960s, after almost three decades of silence, there was a resurgence of alleged appearances of the Jersey Devil. Residents of Mays Landing reported hearing screams at all hours of the night, and the police had no explanation for their origin. Police allegedly posted flyers to reassure concerned citizens that the Jersey Devil was a hoax. NJ.com, a local news website for the state of New Jersey, claims that at the same time as the police were hanging their flyers, a circus owner posted his own, offering a $100,000 reward for anyone that could capture the beast. No one received the award, but not for lack of trying. Coming up, the Jersey Devil stops a car in its tracks. Now back to the story. According to legend, the witch, Mother Leeds, is responsible for giving birth to the Jersey Devil. There is evidence that the Leeds family existed, and there are even descendants of the family still living in New Jersey today. Most scholars trace the story back to the turn of the 18th century, when Quakers and Native Americans of the Lenape tribe were living side by side in the Pine Barrens. At the time, the Barrens spanned from modern-day Asbury Park to Cape May, and the Atlantic Ocean all the way to the Delaware River. Today, it measures 1.1 million acres, which is roughly 22% of New Jersey's total landmass. The language barrier between the Quakers and the Lenape created speculation around the intentions of each. Some scholars have suggested that at some point during this time, the Quakers may have witnessed Lenape ceremonies, worshiping a forest-dwelling spirit called Messing. The Lenape believed Messing kept nature in balance by punishing those who sought to despoil the forest. Though it is the protector of all animals, it is most strongly associated with deer. In physical form, it has been described as a fur-covered, humanoid creature with a red and black face. The pervading view that European Quakers had of Native Americans at the time was that they were devil-worshipping savages 
As such, many scholars believe that they may have heard the description of the Masang and taken it to mean the figure of the devil or Satan, a concept which is actually foreign to Lenape tradition. But a misinterpretation of native tradition doesn't explain all the haunting sites in the Pine Barrens. Erica Miller was driving home from her graveyard shift at the ICU at St. Mary's Hospital in New Jersey. She kept her windows rolled down. The wind helped keep her awake. Every week, she stuffed four shifts into three days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. That way, she always had a four-day weekend. She saved Wednesday for recovery. By Thursday, she'd be alive and well again. Her friends were often worried her schedule was too intense for someone pushing 41 years old. But Erica scoffed at them. She'd worry about her health when she reached 50, not a minute earlier. She switched the station on the radio. She stopped when she heard a name she recognized. Ian McGrath, the chief ranger for the Wharton State Forest. They dated about 25 years ago while they were in high school in 47, but they've remained friends since. Apparently, her old boyfriend had a bad day at work. A local farm called McGrath to try and identify what kind of predator might be responsible for slaughtering their pigs. Whatever it was, apparently didn't leave a single one alive. They'd been torn open. But the only part of the animal that was actually eaten was the back of their heads. From ear to ear and snout to neck, the predator had consumed the skull, brain, and everything in between. This wasn't the only peculiarity. No footprints were found at the scene of the crime. It was as if something flew in, feasted, and left. Erica swerved back into her lane. She didn't even realize she'd been drifting. She pinched her cheeks and eyelids, then changed the station to something a little less gruesome. And as she did, a pickup truck turned onto the road behind her. She was a good driver, but she liked to keep her distance. Proximity on the road, especially to trucks, was a fear that never really left her since driving school. She stepped on the gas just a little, but the truck sped up to match her pace. She looked in the rear view to see if it was someone she knew, but she was blinded by the truck's high beams. Whoever it was was a real jerk. She pulled over to the side of the road to let him pass. Instead, the truck pulled up behind her, and the owner got out. From the silhouette, she knew it was a man. He was heavy and walked with a particularly wide gait. From her rearview mirror, she watched him slowly raise his hands in the air, the universal symbol for, I mean no harm. She kept her foot on the brake, but put the car back in drive, just in case. He approached from the passenger side of the car. She reached over and cranked down the window. He was older than she expected, maybe 60, and significantly more drunk. He apologized for scaring her, but he needed help. He said his name was Gary. While driving home from the local dive, he saw a girl crying by the side of the road. When he got closer, she had sprinted into the forest. 
he couldn't find her. And it was dangerous out there. He went back to the bar to call the police, but their phone wasn't working. As the man spoke, Erica saw a black dog appear behind him. For a second, it looked like it was staring back at her. Gary snapped his fingers to get her attention again. She interrupted him to let him know his dog might have escaped his truck, but he wasn't comprehending. He didn't have a dog. And when she looked again, it was gone. Erica was still another 20 minutes from home. Her job was to care about others, but she was off duty, and the sun would be up in less than an hour. She told the man that she would call the police when she got home. She asked for the cross streets of where he first saw the girl, and a description of what she looked like. His description was rambling and uncertain. The only thing he could recall vividly was the girl herself. She had long golden hair that flowed down to her waist, and she was wearing a white dress. Suddenly, as if he conjured her with the description, a little blonde girl in a white dress walked out of the forest behind him. Erica noticed immediately that she had no shoes, and she was not crying. Erica motioned to the man to look behind him. He whipped around and gasped in shock. The man bent down and called for the girl to come over. They were adults. They might help her find her parents. But the girl wasn't interested in what he was saying. She was motioning to the woods behind her, beckoning, as if inviting someone just out of sight to follow her. A shiver ran down Erica's spine. Maybe they'd already been reunited, and she wanted to show the old man she was okay. Maybe the girl had been camping with her parents and their dog. Erica expected one or the other to emerge behind the golden-haired girl, but neither did. What came out instead was nothing like Erica had ever seen before. A scream erupted from her chest, but it got caught in her throat. Her eyes locked in with the monsters before she turned and frantically tried to get away. Whatever it was, was seven feet tall with leathery wings and it was not friendly. It rushed at her car with a bone-chilling cry. Erica stepped on the gas. The car roared to life and sped down the road. She didn't look back. She couldn't. Gary's face flashed through her mind. And then, something heavy fell onto her windshield. She instinctively pressed on the brakes, bringing the car to a screeching halt. Cracks spread across her field of vision. She gunned the gas again. She didn't want to know what it was. She just wanted to get home. The engine didn't cooperate. Her eyes unwillingly fell to the object that hit her windshield. The fragmented glass remained in one piece, but the object completely blocked her view. Blood started to trickle into the cracks. She screamed. Laying on the front of her car was Gary broken, lifeless, and missing the back of his head. In 1972, New Jersey resident Mary Ritzer Christensen claims to have seen the Jersey Devil on Green Tree Road near the town of Glassboro. According to Christensen, a figure crossed the road about 25 feet behind her car. 
She described it as having thick haunches like a goat and a huge, woolly head. In 1980, Chief Ranger Officer Alan McFarlane was called to a South Jersey farm where a number of pigs had been slaughtered. Their bodies were scratched and torn and the backs of their heads eaten. There was no blood trail and no footprints. The mystery of what happened to them was never solved. Some believe the pigs fell victim to the Jersey Devil. The Jersey Devil isn't the only thing to haunt the woods of the Pine Barrens, though. Two other figures, known as the Black Dog and the Golden-Haired Girl, are also said to lurk among the trees. According to folklore, in the 19th century, a local cabin boy owned a rather large black dog. In an invasion by pirates, possibly even by Blackbeard himself, both the boy and the dog were killed. Now, the ghost of the black dog haunts the beach and forests of the Pine Barrens. But some claim his presence is a good omen, not a bad one. Like the black dog, the golden-haired girl is also a tragic figure of the Pine Barrens. In life, she was said to have lost the love of her life, a young man, to a storm at sea. Now, her ghost wanders the area, mourning the loss of her love. Most interestingly, she is often said to be seen keeping company with the Jersey Devil, for reasons largely unknown. Coming up, the Jersey Devil goes viral. Now back to the story. The character of Mother Leeds in the Jersey Devil tale is not always portrayed as a witch, but witchcraft always has had some hand in the story. Scholars attribute this fact to the fascination surrounding witchcraft in the late 17th and early 18th century. In the 1690s, the Puritans led a witch hunt in colonial Massachusetts. More than 200 women were accused of witchcraft, and 19 were hanged. Today, it's known as the Salem Witch Trials. But the fear of witchcraft reached the Quakers in New Jersey as well. In fact, in 1668, the General Assembly of East Jersey passed a law stating, if any person shall be found a witch, either male or female, they shall be put to death. Neighboring Native Americans also believed in and feared witches. They believed that they could conjure spells, fly, and perform evil deeds, and to varying degrees, also believed they should be put to death. Perhaps the real Deborah Leeds was one of the unfortunate accused in New Jersey. Some scholars have also suggested that it's possible Leeds gave birth to a child with a medical defect, which might have been viewed as a devil by her superstitious neighbors. It could also be the reason for a 13th child not appearing in Jaffet Leeds' will. Other scholars have even linked a satirical essay written by Benjamin Franklin in the Pennsylvania Gazette as a precursor to the Jersey Devil. In it, he pokes fun at the silliness of witch hunting. But to some, the essay alludes to a devil child being born near Mount Holly in New Jersey. Perhaps he knew something we don't. Regardless, human fascination with the Jersey Devil still remains strong today. Ryan O'Connell had big plans for his weekend, huge. 
His girlfriend, Emily, had come across a website on Facebook called Weird New Jersey. And it was weird. The site was full of delusional people posting about their hilarious make-believe sightings around New Jersey. A man with a hook for a hand, Bigfoot, a monster sea serpent, and of course, the Jersey Devil. They had spent hours trolling the comment section under a fake account they created before Emily had a brilliant idea. They should catch the Jersey Devil on camera. It was helpful to have an artist for a girlfriend when you need to catch an imaginary creature live on video. Two days after Emily suggested the idea, she came back with a puppet. It was nothing intricate. It was less than six inches long and four high, made of string, paper, and glue. But its wings could be controlled, and if you passed it in front of the camera quick enough, under the right lighting, it could easily be mistaken for a six-foot-tall devil. To really sell it, Ryan was going to propose to Emily on camera. Not because they were actually going to get married, but because they needed a reason for filming that had nothing to do with monsters. The hoax would be more credible that way. He even packed a picnic to set the scene. Ryan started filming as soon as they were in the car, asking rehearsed questions like, Do you know where we're going? To which Emily responded, No, because you won't tell me. If anything else, they were having fun. When they arrived at the park on the edge of the Pine Barrens, Ryan made sure to catch the street signs and the surrounding area. Real Jersey Devil fans would know that they were walking into primo devil territory. After they set up their sunset picnic and popped the champagne, Emily asked Ryan to turn off the camera for a second. Her stated reason was that he was too attached to his phone. But it was all part of the plan. They needed time to set up their monster puppet on their jerry-rigged zipline so that it passed by in frame. They ran fishing wire from two nearby trees, one to the other, which would be triggered by a trip line that would be controlled by Ryan. Once tripped, gravity would do the rest. Timing was everything. It had to be slow enough for the camera to catch it, but quick enough where they could have missed it in the moment. Too fast and it might spin out of control. Getting an honest reaction to seeing the devil was going to be difficult. Emily was a good actress, but she wasn't a miracle worker. The video would be called Oblivious Couple Mrs. Jersey Devil. Just in time for dusk, everything was set up and the camera was back on. They didn't have to worry about continuity. They drank the bottle of champagne while setting up. They ate the food, but now they were back on the blanket. It was almost time for Ryan to stand Emily up and fake ask her to marry him. When suddenly, Emily went off script. Her eyes widened as she stared over Ryan's shoulder. She burst into laughter and apologized. It was just that she saw the weirdest little girl walk by. She looked like she was Amish or something, with blonde hair down to her waist. Emily told Ryan it was literally the creepiest thing she had ever seen. Ryan hadn't seen the girl. It was okay. He'd be able to find her when looking over the footage. It was fine. The ad-libs were good. It made it all the more believable. 
But now was the tricky part, their proposal. He got the ring from Claire's in their local mall, but it could pass for something as nice. He grabbed the camera for the first-person shot of Emily's reaction. But as he did, he realized that he'd forgotten the ring in the car. He'd be right back. But when he came back three minutes later, Emily was gone. Standing in the middle of the park was the little blonde girl Emily had seen. He turned the camera on her. Emily was right. She was scary. But for whatever reason, the camera wasn't registering her. The view screen showed an empty field. He took another step forward. That was a mistake. The puppet smashed into the camera. He accidentally tripped the release. When he looked back up, the girl was gone. And then he heard something that made his stomach churn. Emily. The scream came from the forest, and it was definitely real. He tossed the camera on the ground and sprinted into the woods as a roar bellowed from the pines. The camera watched as Ryan dwindled onto the horizon and disappeared between the trees. Then, the battery died. The video did end up going viral. When police arrived in the Pine Barrens, looking for two teenagers who had gone missing, they collected the camera for evidence, and the footage somehow leaked. Not only did it make weird New Jersey, but it racked up more than a million views on YouTube. It was called, real or fake, The Jersey Devil. As technology became a bigger part of our daily lives, claims of photographic and video evidence of the Jersey Devil started to surface. One of the more recent claims comes from a resident of Little Egg Harbor Township named David Black in 2015. He claims he caught the Jersey Devil on film. The photograph released to the press is a grainy shot of what appears to be a goat-like creature with wings flying from the tree line of the Pine Barrens. As one might expect, controversy surrounded the alleged evidence. Some claim that Black's monster looks like a still-life, man-made prop, incapable of replicating physical motion. Many critics claim that, to date, all evidence of the Jersey Devil has been faked. But not everyone is so quick to dismiss them. We'll let you decide for yourself. And if you don't find the answers you're looking for, Maybe you'll just have to take a trip to the Pine Barrens. But don't forget, if you see any barefooted little girls in the woods, run the other way. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
to stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Connor Sampson. With writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>